0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome this morning. Glad that you're with us. As you can see, if you're online, we are back in the church building. Uh, I wouldn't say that we have people beating down the doors to get in this morning uh, with coronavirus and also with uh, with the weather. Uh, kind of... Uh, I wasn't paying attention to the weather too much, so when I woke up and saw snow, I was like, oh my, that's, a, that's news to me. So here we are this morning. Amen. I'm going to turn our attention this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, I have been doing, as you know, a series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 14 now. It's taken us uh, the better part of a year to get to this point. Hey, there's some of the people we prayed for just now. Before we finished praying, basically, the Lord answered. <laughs> Very good. Matthew chapter fourteen, guys. I guess it looks like I'm your Sunday school teacher today. Yeah, I don't have any cool uh graphical aids or uh any flannel graphs or anything like that, so <laughs> you're gonna have to just uh be stuck with me here. Matthew chapter fourteen. This is a um, who this is a story here especially for some of our young people to have to endure. Sorry for the cough, guys. I don't have a, well, I do have a little cough button. It takes a second to uh, activate and then deactivate. So John chapter 14, quite a story of immorality in the highest levels of government here. Uh, uh, What the world would consider an eccentric religious preacher and a murder plot to get revenge. Sounds like a movie. But it was reality in the life of John the Baptist and the family of the Herods. Uh, I said it was, sounds like a movie plot, but uh, you know the only reason it sounds like a movie plot is because of the twists of sin in it, and nobody's interested in uh, not nobody, but many are not interested in movies that portray all righteous things. you know they want to see all the intrigue and all the sinful aspects of it now. If some of this about John the Baptist sounds familiar, it's because it is. In chapter 11, we went over some of this material, but not from this perspective. From, in chapter 11, you remember what happened there? John the Baptist was in prison, which this chapter deals with also, but he was in prison and he was depressed because he did not understand what was going on with Jesus. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus worked some signs Uh, for him, uh, not just for him, but for the people, and said to his messengers, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard, uh, that uh, there there are healings, that the gospel is preached, and all of that, and that was to help uplift uplift John in the midst of his prison depression, as I called it. He was at the bottom of the barrel as far as his emotions and feelings went, because he was not understanding what God's plan was. God's plan was not that the Messiah would be announced and then the kingdom would come immediately. In fact, there is to be a long delay before the kingdom actually came as, and we're still in that delay period awaiting for the rearrival of our king at the second coming of Jesus. Um, but we look at this whole thing from a different angle in, these, uh, in this study here this morning. So uh, let me read chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants this is John the baptist he's risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him for Herod now it's going to go into retrospective mode here okay it's going to back up many of you young people probably have read books where there's a little section and then it goes back in time and tells about something and then it comes back up to the present time in the book Well, that's what's happening here. Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. What maybe we should add there is Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who was now his own wife, who had left Philip and came to him to be his wife. And although he wanted, his Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Boy, that's really uh, successful parenting, isn't it, right there? Terrible. Verse 9, and the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths, and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. So then, if we fast forward to the present again, this is why... Herod heard about Jesus and he said, "Uh uh-oh, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. He's a miracle worker now because he's on his second life or his reincarnation. I'll mention something about that in in a moment. Let me give you the background of this situation and then uh, we'll talk about John's call to repentance, the the women's revenge and then some conclusions. I have uh, two or three applications that I want to share, and I think they will be helpful to you, uh, including our young folks that are here today. First of all, the background. The family tree is complicated, to say the least here. Uh, Herod the Great, remember Herod the Great was the one who was alive when Jesus was born? That's the Herod and the wise men and and the census and all those things, uh, and there're Matthew one and two and Luke one and two um, Herod the Great, if you look him up, had as many as ten wives, not all at the same time, uh, uh, unfortunately, for some of them, they were executed um, and uh, we're not going to get into all the details. I put a little link there you can look up in the notes these are available on the on the church website if you want to get them um, but I want to skip over all those gory details, so to speak. So Herod the Great is the Herod alive at the time of Jesus. He had these ten wives. He had fourteen children, from what we can tell, in total. Now, we've come to uh, verse number uh, three, and we see this this name of this uh, woman named Herodias, and Herodias was the daughter of one of Herod's children, so she was a granddaughter. She was the daughter of one of the boys named Aristobulus. Aristobulus. And then she married Herod Philip, one of her uncles, which to us is really weird, but that's what they did. And then she divorced him and married another uncle, Herod Antipas. And it's this Herod, Antipas, that is the one... Who is Herod the Tetrarch in Matthew chapter fourteen, and he's the one that ruled over Galilee. Remember, Galilee is to the north. Now, Um, who was the one? Who was the other Herod that was reigning in the south after Herod the Great died? Do you remember his name? Joseph was afraid to go there because he heard. It's on the tip of your tongue, brother. I can starts with an A. It's Archelaus. Archelaus was ruling uh, down in the southern portion, Judea. That's Herod Archelaus. Um, but this was Herod Antipas, and this is some time later. Uh, obviously, you know, when we're talking about Jesus' birth and then we're talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, we're talking 30 years difference. So this is a long span of time. So you have a situation where a woman is married to one guy, then she's married to his brother, and the brother, the first one's not dead. So this is not a case of leveret marriage. You remember leverett marriage, what that is? So a fellow passes away with no heir, then his brother can marry his his the first the wife, who's now a widow, and that's appropriate and proper and all of that, and then can have a if they have a son then that son will take up the name and inheritance of the first one who died because inheritance rights were so important to them. They had that arrangement. But this was actually a violation of the law of Moses. In Leviticus 18, 16, it was strictly forbidden that one would be married to a, uh, a man and then, all, and then go and be married to the brother while they were still alive. <clears throat> Excuse me. And by the way, it was a violation of the Lord's teaching on marriage. If you remember from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse number 28, um, and I don't have to actually go to that. It's actually verse 31 is what I'm thinking of. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So what he's saying is, you know, divorce is like no fault. It's easy in this culture. That's what they say. Just just write the paperwork and be done with it. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So whatever you take about the, the exception clause and all of that, that's not involved here. That's not involved here at all. This is a case of simply breaking the law of Moses flagrantly in public not hidden at all at the highest levels of government. And John the Baptist, who was probably the only or one of the only men preaching true righteousness, somehow worked it out so that he could speak, as they say, you know, they like to say today, speak truth to power. He spoke truth to power all right. See what it got him? Yeah, power didn't like truth, did it? no no uh that's that's all relative It's all good when when there's certain parties in power to speak truth to power, but when there's other others in power, it's not so good to speak truth to them at least how they think of it so um so he told Herod Antipas i don't know if he did this directly to his face or through his preaching, and the word got back to Herod that you know this John the Baptist is criticizing you all throughout his preaching and stuff and so uh, he said, look, it's, well, what does he say? Look at it in uh, verse number 4. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. In other words, it's not lawful for you to be married to her. You have sinned, and you need to right that wrong. Well, the lust of Herod did not permit him to see the evil of what he was doing. He was so enraged that someone would dare to question whatever he wanted to do so it says in the text that he wanted to put him to death he wanted to kill john you know isn't that nice you know get rid of the get rid of the little conscience guy talking to you by killing him rather than dealing with the issue that is at hand don't ever do that my friends don't ever look to kill the messenger so to speak or you know, today I, you wouldn't maybe do that, but I bet you, I bet you, if you were in a, a sinful mindset, you would ghost them. You'd unfriend them. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, we have the same tendency. We have the same, and an absolute power, of course. You know what that does to people. So that that led him to be able to do this very extreme act, or try to at least at first, but. And here's this, this part of the text is going to give us a little insight into human motivation, which I want you to hold on to until we get to the end of the message. It says in verse 5, And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, that is, John, as a prophet. So he wanted to put him to death. Listen, this is not a contradiction, but he didn't want to put him to death. Does that make sense to you? not in the same sense at the same time, but in different senses. He wanted to, but he didn't want to. In other words, he had competing motivations, which meant that he didn't want to kill John. He feared the populace. Uh, there was a uh, political reality. In fact, the people were right in this case, weren't they? John was a prophet, the hoy polloi were right and the elites were wrong. But uh, Herod's motivation was not driven by the principle of right and wrong, was it? You know, if you don't have people who are um, somehow basically upright or moral in their principles ruling you, you have a big problem. They're not driven by basic morality. Here, this guy was not driven by a an adherence to what's right and what's wrong, what's just and what's unjust. It was a political reality on the ground, and he didn't want to upset people too much because it would make his life difficult. It was not a righteous motivation. It was a selfish motivation. Now, certainly, either within his lifetime or shortly thereafter, he found out that messing with the prophet of God was not a good idea and by the way, that's what kind of helps us when we face difficulties to know that in the end, God will, His justice will prevail. Even if it takes a long time, it will prevail. Now, Mark chapter 6 and verse 20 adds to this. Why don't you turn there and just look at that verse. Um, Verse actually nineteen and twenty. <clears throat> In Mark six nineteen, it says, "Therefore Herodias held it against him. This is John, and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did he did many things and heard him gladly. So we've mentioned the motivation he wanted to kill him." but he didn't want to kill him. He had pressure from this uh, now stepdaughter from a previous, the previous marriage. He, she wanted to kill John, so he was, she was agitating him to do that, but then he had this another motivation to keep John alive as he recognized he was a just man, a prophet, a holy man. Um, so you have all these competing motivations going on. Um, You know, maybe he had this idea that he's a just and holy man in the sense of like, uh, you know, the kind of self-protective, look, I don't want to mess with God kind of thing. You know, you know, you can, like a code of honor among thieves, you know, you don't steal from a church. You can steal from anywhere else, but just don't steal from a church, you know, because then you really get in trouble with God, Um, you know, that's wrong thinking, but, you know, Stops people from stealing from the church, I'll take it. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's just uh, it's a strange kind of thing that you, he's thinking, well, yeah. there's a snippet of self-centered fear of God here. So what? I, let me say that a different way. There's a snippet of the fear of God, but it's kind of self-centered fear, right? It's not honoring to God kind of fear. It's not righteous thinking. So motivations are often complicated things, and we'll think about that in application in just a moment. So the lengthier part of this chapter now, chapter 14, or this segment, rather, in verses 6 through 12, covers the women's revenge. And I put that in plural here, the two women who were involved. Herod's birthday party comes, and uh, we'll say that it was not the moral equivalent of a Sunday school picnic. Uh, It was probably a drunken party, Herodias' daughter, who who we believe is named Salome, not not necessarily the one that you see elsewhere two times in the New Testament, but she's from the first marriage uh, with Herodias and Herod Philip. Um, She danced for the assembled guests. She was one of the entertainers for that evening, and Herod enjoyed that and offered a reward to her and said whatever she wanted to have. So her mother saw the opportunity for revenge on her foremost critic, And so she prompted her daughter to ask for Herod to go through with his initial murderous instinct to kill uh, John the Baptist by beheading and her desire to get rid of him. It's odd that that would be like the highest desire that she and her daughter would collectively have. Whatever you want, you know, you could have a new palace, you could have a new home, you could have a, a, a new tract of land, you could have some monument built to you or or some new authority in the kingdom, and they didn't want all that. Their lust drove them to this kind of desire. This was all-consuming for them. Can you imagine the first thing they would think of? I can think of a lot of things that I might, if some super-rich ruler were offering me, I could think of a lot of things I might say I'd like to have rather than that. So they're just consumed with hatred and anger for this man. And so they ask, and then the the text tells us, um, verse 9, and the king was sorry. Now, why was he sorry? I mean, he wanted to kill John, the text tells us, but he didn't want to. The reason he was sorry was because he had all these complex motivations going on in his head that he had to deal with, and what were those? Now, in addition to everything we've said before, he wanted to, he didn't want to. Herodias wanted him to. Uh, he, he, the people d- didn't want him to. He didn't want the political trouble. Uh, you know, he knew John was a good guy in a way, and he shouldn't mess with him. He, you know, kind of had that in the back of his mind. But now he has an additional complication, and the additional complication is given in verse 9, the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So now he's got a problem. He, uh, you know, he had bad feelings toward John in the first place, uh, but he was put into a pickle now because he had to address the competing motivations of fear of the populace, the desire to placate his wife, his knowledge that killing a holy man was not good. He weighed that all against displeasing his guests at his party and how it would look to them if he went back on his word. He would, he would look like a weak leader if he did that, a scaredy-cat leader. So his, you know, what did he want to do? In the end, he didn't want to deal with any of it. And he just wanted to leave John in prison, you know, no real charges, uh, just li- leave him to languish there, you know, makes him kind of look tough and, and at the same time merciful because he doesn't take his life. It's, you know, the best of both, of both feckless worlds, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> again, not justice or injustice here. It was a matter of embarrassment now. It was a matter of saving face, of shame, of uh, shame. He had to go through with his open-ended promise to the girl to avoid looking bad. What had Herod done? He had made a rash vow. Remember Jephthah in the Old Testament? You guys cover Jephthah in your Sunday school classes? Do you remember him? I see a puzzled look on the face. Uh, Let's look at Judges uh, chapter 11. And uh, I think that's the place we need to be. Joshua, Judges. Now, the Jephthah story is a lengthy story. You can read in chapter 11 and 12, uh, particularly about him in Judges. But uh, in chapter 11 of Judges, verse 30, it says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If indeed you will deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Stupid. You don't make rash vows like that. Okay, That's the lesson that I've taken from that. In fact, uh, back earlier in the law, in um, Numbers, you don't have to turn there, you just focus on that Jephthah. Part. By the way, what, uh, what was it that uh, came about there uh, with Jephthah? Well, when he came to his house, there was his daughter coming out of the door of the house to meet him. <clears throat> now he's in a real problem. We should have never made that vow. <clears throat> and I believe, I, I'm not sure exactly what happened. I think a lot of people figure that he did actually carry through with that sacrifice, but that was sin. Uh, You should never make a vow that in keeping the vow would be a sin to keep the vow. In fact, what he should have done is realize, Lord, I made a rash vow. Now I'll make a sacrifice because I sinned in making that rash vow. I confess that sin and I take care of it that way. But in, in a similar kind of thing, in Numbers chapter 30, there's a whole section of law concerning the vows. And um, if a young woman makes a vow and then takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips, which she's bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day he hears it, He shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. That's a strong passage for husband headship, by the way. When a woman comes out of the headship of her father, who, by the way, had the right to do the same thing, if he heard that she made a vow, he could annul it immediately. You know, girl, you're not going to do that. That's unwise or whatever. It's not practical and you know, that's just not how we're going to behave around this home. But when she transferred into the, into the care and love of another man, her husband, he, would, he had the right to do the same thing. So important principle there, I believe, for us as Christians. But uh, that's what happened with uh, the rash vows. Um, Ecclesiastes tells us better not to vow than to make a promise to God and not keep it. Okay, so thus the Lord Jesus teaches us, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just be a man of your word. No no rash vows, no vows, no oaths, none of that sort of thing. Well, back to Matthew chapter 14. The orders uh, to behead John were carried out and in a grotesque show, his head was brought to the girl and the girl gave it to her Mother. That's sick. That is sick. And I don't mean sick like they say sick today, the teens. I mean really gross. Their sick fantasy was fulfilled. Just imagine the kind of daughter that they're raising to have thoughts and desires like that. But what never bothered them, not only was the sin of murder but also their sins of incest and adultery and all the rest that they were doing. They just weren't bothered by sin. Where was their conscience? Where was their conscience at? So then the Bible tells us, verse 12, the disciples came and took away the body and buried it. They gave it as proper of a burial as they could to the greatest man who ever lived. Remember, Jesus said that among those born of women, there's not a greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. So some weeks or months later, news of the mighty works of Jesus were getting around and Herod heard about it. And it seems that at least his conscience was somewhat bothered because of what he had done to John. Or maybe it wasn't his conscience at all. Maybe it was just that he was superstitious. Do you want to take a vote on that, whether it was conscience or superstition or maybe both a little bit? Um, I don't know exactly, but maybe his superstition was simply, you know, my misdeed is about to come back on me. Karma is going to pay me back, maybe. And evidently, there was a belief in reincarnation at this time. Isn't that what he's believing here? Listen, my friends, if you believe in reincarnation, uh, get real, okay? Okay? It's appointed unto people to die once, and then the judgment. That's it. You don't get redos, no do-overs, no nine lives. You know, no uh, reaching nirvana or anything like that. One death, and then judgment. Well, you know, and I was just thinking about this. There's, new, there's no new heresy under the sun. Reincarnation has been around as a doctrine. And it's, it's, it's an imaginary doctrine. People imagine, oh, they, they say, oh, we've got evidence. This, this young child has memories of a previous life, and that's just nonsense. Could be the devil has implanted some of those things in that person if they're particularly demon-possessed in order to get people to think that there is such a thing as reincarnation when, in fact, there is no such thing. As far as heresies goes, what is, was, and what was, will be yet again. How how Herod could be so ignorant, I don't know. But it's strange because didn't he hear about Jesus prior to John the Baptist beheading? I mean, they were only six months apart. They lived pretty much contiguous uh, lives for 30 years, 29, 31, however long it was. And so that Herod was that out of touch just seems kind of strange to me. His hypothesis of John coming back as Jesus could not be correct, obviously because Jesus existed a long time before John died. But this is what worry does to people and superstition. Now let me draw some conclusions from this. As much as I hate to have to say this first one, God does permit rank injustice of the worst kind. He does permit that, even to his people. You think about this. Same as with John with Jesus. No valid reason to kill them, no valid reason to imprison them, to beat them, to discourage them, or anything else. We have to be ready for that possibility ourselves as well. And let me just say this. When any of us face this kind of persecution, we all do, okay? I think that's lost a little bit on us. You know, we've lost sight of the fact that some of our brothers who are pastors in Canada have been put in jail. That's us. Remember those who are in chains as if chained with them. You have a solidarity with them. And so if we just sit here and think, well, I'm glad that's not me. That is you. We've got to get real, people. You think it's not coming? Came to them. It's coming here. It already has in some ways. It tried to close down worship two years ago in the church, and uh, as you know, we very quickly got over that. Started coming back to worship the Lord. But uh, you know, you have the same sort of thing going on in, in undercover ways with wokeness and CRT and some of our dear uh, and workers here in the church having to deal with DEI stuff all the time just that's that is that is not that's anti-christian my friends anti-christian stuff okay now we can go over that in more detail and we've dealt with CRT from this pulpit but CRT is a gospel that is a totally anti the true gospel it's a humanistic approach to to life. And some of our people may indeed end up losing their jobs because not only of vaccines and COVID, but because of DEI and what it does to employers. It's a whole big time movement out there. Billion dollar industry, I would would venture to say, probably more than that. So, we have to realize that God does permit injustices, and those may come to visit us in various forms and various ways in the future, Uh, and it already has, as our brothers and sisters have been affected in other places in the world, and that's not to mention those in the Middle East and China and Russia and, and Myanmar and all these other places that are suffering terribly. Those are our brothers and sisters. Second application, sometimes there is a price to be paid for preaching righteousness like John did, but the price is worth honor for God in it. So, yes, we do call our society. For example, we rebuke those who say that it's okay to kill children on this Sanctity of Life Sunday. Now, just a note on that. Some might say, well, it was, it was last Sunday that was saying, please, don't be so technical. Uh, January 22nd was the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, as I understand it. So this is the closest Sunday to that. Uh, some are celebrating it last Sunday, some this Sunday. But the point remains, beside all the technicalities of what day to say anything about this on, it doesn't matter. We can say something every Sunday. Killing 60 million children is a stain of blood on the hands of our nation that is irreversible, irretrievable. You know, life is over for them. And it's evil and wicked. And if you think that it's okay, you need to recheck yourself, okay? And if you're not going to change your mind, then you just have to realize God is going to judge you. That's all there is to it. It is not okay to kill children in their mother's womb. That is murder in the first degree. And so if we pay a price for preaching righteousness, whether it's about abortion or about lifestyle issues or whatever it is, we just have to pay the price. Third application, people are hard-hearted and hard-headed. Hard-hearted and hard-headed. They do not see the most obvious things when, say, for example, it comes to love. Or as I like to remind people, it's not love. It's L-U-S-T that these guys are talking about. It's very easy to mix up these concepts in an emotional approach to life and feelings overrun reason and morality so that decisions regarding marriage and intimacy and living together and divorce and adultery are all messed up some people know it's wrong and do it anyway. Others have lost connection with all moral reality and think it's just normal and not a problem. How many think that it's just not? Nah, it's just what people do. They live together before they get married. When you confront them with the wrong of that, they become quickly defensive and, because they love what they're doing. The gospel can penetrate those force fields, but we cannot on our own. And so remember, the hard-hearted and hard-headed nature of people is such that we must use the gospel, and the gospel has to penetrate that. And then finally, and this gets back to our issue of motivations, we need to think about our own motivations for doing things. We've labored in this message to show that Herod had some very complicated motivations He had machinations going on in his head. I want to get rid of John. I don't want to get rid of John. Herodias is pressuring me to get rid of John. We've gone through the whole... All these things. Pros and cons. Do it, don't do it. We too have justifications and reasons and thoughts for how we behave. We have to make sure that our complex motivations are lining up with Scripture and we do not allow ourselves to submit to the weakest or basest of our motivations. Does that make sense? You know, you think about doing something or, or being some way, and you say, well, I, I, I really shouldn't do that. I want to do that. I, this is in favor of it. Now, this is against it. You've got to make sure that this is the guide for the motivations that you have and that you've got a clear head in your brain about what you're doing. So don't let complicated machinations, motivations misguide you like Herod did. It was a very easy answer for Herod. Release John the Baptist and tell his daughter to pound sand. Yes, we've decided to get into this relationship and we're just going to deal with, if he he wants to do it, we're just going to continue on regardless of what anybody says about it. Or... We're going to cut this, better yet, we're going to cut this thing off because it's not right, God's representative says. Very easy. But his lust wouldn't let him do that. His motivations pushed him in a different direction. Don't let your sinful motivations overcome that which you know to be right. That's one of the messages that I want to share with you out of this today, as well as those other applications and the one that I titled the message with or put as the top truth, Believers Can Expect Unjust Persecution. Just be be aware of that. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will bless our, our, our message here this morning. May it find a, a place in our hearts to help us to grow in the likeness of Christ and to be righteous people. Lord, help us to think clearly, more clearly than Herod did, and to stand up boldly for Christ what is right. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.